Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. It's Dr. Casey Patrick. Joining me today is Clinical Chief Jordan Anderson and running the boards, making us sound good, as always, Andy Adams. Today, we're going to talk a little pharmacology. Before we get into the sort of the meat and the potatoes of pharmacology, I want to talk a little bit about why I think the med list is underrated, valuable, and pretty darn important. You know, a lot of times when we pick up our patients, we don't have a chart. You know, there's not past medical history. There's not the last note in the clinic. There's not the last ED visit, the last x-ray, EKG findings. You know, we get a patient that's altered and a family member that knows 20% of their history and hands us a Walmart bag with pill bottles in it. And so we know oftentimes very little about the patient, about the patient's history, about their, uh, their past medical problems. But in that plastic bag are clue bottles every single time, big clues. And I think that it's important for us to remember that and to use those those bottles, those the medication list, the little wadded up index card that the wife has in the, in the gentleman's wallet. We get those all the time and you have to look through, you know, mamma's meds and papa's meds and the biscuit recipe to decide, you know, which, which one's the meds they're taking. When you get those seven, eight, nine, ten medications for those folks can be really helpful for us to work backwards. So you may not, you know, the wife may not know his medical history, but if you see aspirin, beta blocker, Plavix, and a statin on the medication list, you can, you know, infer that potentially coronary artery disease is one of the patient's medical problems. If you see Coumadin or Warfarin on the medication list, you can assume that patient probably has a history of atrial fibrillation or deep venous thrombosis. And more importantly, you can assume that bleeding spontaneously or GI uh, should be on your differential. And we'll talk a little more, a little bit more about this as we go through but just remember that the medication list in and of itself, the medication bottle bag, the makeup kit with the meds in it, the lunch box with the meds in it, we see all kinds of carrying cases for medications. Don't underestimate the value that we can get out of those meds and how we can look backwards and think about what their medical problems may be and look forwards and think about what potential problems the patients could have i.e. side effects from the medications. Yeah, Doc, so why don't we go over and, and look at maybe the most top 10 prescribed medications. So what are the most likely medications that when you go through the purse, the med bag that you'll find? And, and if we can kind of be familiar with the top 10 list as a medic, we'd probably be able to get most of the disease process. Jordan and I have been back and forth on the, on the best way to, to talk about the top 10 medications as we prep this discussion. Um, Jordan likes the top 10 list. I think that it's better to approach it from the standpoint of what's the most common medical problems that we see. And in all honesty, both of us, I think, are probably right is what it comes down to. Because if you think of the most common medical problems that we see in emergency care, you can get pretty close to the top 10 most commonly prescribed meds. And if you guys want to double check us out there, uh, there are multiple ways we can calculate what the top 10 meds are. This is just one that we pulled off. Um, so if we left one off that you're a fan of, don't, don't, uh, please don't shoot us. Um, this is just a, a random list that we found. But the way that I would approach it, if I'm going to teach it or talk about it, is I would say what's the most common things that we see. And we see hypertension, diabetes, pain, anxiety, depression, and acid reflux. And so if you take those five major groups of patients that we take care of, pick up all the time that are on our past medical history list all the time, that actually gets us nine out of 10. So which one, which one do we leave out, Jordan? 
Where we start, start with the one that's not on the top five things that we see on our patients. Yeah. So the one medication that has a, a purpose for other than those disease processes is actually the most commonly prescribed uh, medication in America. And I, for whatever reason, kind of Googled this list annually to see the, the changes in healthcare. Um, it hasn't changed a lot in time, but this drug has been on top for a long time and it's Synthroid. So Synthroid or levothyroxine, um, from an emergency provider standpoint, doesn't get us too fired up. You know, it's a pretty simple medication to take. It's, you know, there's not a lot of toxicity, uh, side effect, allergic reaction. You know, with some of the others um, that we have to talk about moving forward, there's, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of interesting tidbits there. What I would say is that when we think about Synthroid or levothyroxine, it's thyroid hormone replacement. Uh, for patients with hypothyroidism. So if someone does get in trouble with too much Synthroid, then you're gonna see symptoms that will be consistent with a hyperactive thyroid. So what's our thyroid do? It's involved in homeostasis. So it maintains our respiratory rate, our GI tract, our core temperature, heart rate. So if we have too much thyroid, then everything goes up. So we have diarrhea, we feel hot, we're sweaty, our heart rate goes up, jittery. So those are the things, if you have too much Synthroid on board that you would you'd be looking for. As far as the other end of the spectrum, if someone's hypothyroid, then everything's gonna be slowed. So they're gonna be a little bit uh, cooler as far as core temp, potentially constipation, and confusion, altered mental status, slower heart rate. And again, these are gonna be situations where we see clinical hypothyroidism or mixed edema coma and clinical hyperthyroidism, uh, things like Graves' disease, um, other reasons for, for a thyroid storm, most of the time not associated with Synthroid. But that's the most, that's, that's the most interesting tidbits I can throw out there for Synthroid. Let's, let's move on down the list, Jordan. So, so hypothyroidism aside, the next class of drugs that, that kind of encompasses a few on the list is antihypertensives. So on this list, we have ACE inhibitors, we have ARBs, and calcium channel blockers. So obviously all of these are, are lowering, lowering blood pressure and chronic hypertensive uh, patients. Uh, but different populations or different people need different kind of strategies to treat their hypertension. So do you want to start with? Yeah, let's kind of let's kind of focus on when these become important to the paramedic because treating hypertension and management of, of hypertension, I mean, we could discuss that for a month. And a lot of that really doesn't apply to us in the pre-hospital setting. But sometimes the, you know, again, the side effects, the overdose situations in these medications are more applicable to us as pre-hospital providers. So First one you mentioned was ACE inhibitors or angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors. And we all know those as the prills, most commonly uh, lisinopril or uh, trade name Zestrel is one of the, is one of, is the most common ACE inhibitor that we, that we see folks taking. And I think we all know what the big side effect we see with ACE inhibitors and that's ACE inhibitor angioedema. Um, and a couple high points on ACE inhibitor angioedema. The first one is, is that it's not a uh, classic IgE mediated anaphylaxis uh, allergic reaction, but we do see similar findings. We see oftentimes angioedema is, is our big finding that we see uh, with ACE inhibitor uh, use. And it can occur on the first week or two after initiating. It can occur years after initiating. So that's one thing that patients will often tell us when we tell them, hey, you know, your lip's swollen, your tongue's swollen, look at the med list, lisinopril's on there. Yes, ma'am, sir, I, I think you're having a reaction called angioedema to your blood pressure medicine, and they will look at you, you know, dumbfounded, kind of like you're the crazy one that 
I've been on it for two years can't be the lacinopril. And that's, it, it can be, and that's the, that's the, the strange part about it. I'm still trying to target the exact pathophysiologic source for uh, ACE inhibitor angioedema. We've tried some, some drugs, multiple drugs to try to, to try to fight this condition. None of them work very well. We always give, when we see swollen lips and tongue and angioedema, we always give the allergic reaction cocktail. These patients are always going to get Benadryl and steroids and potentially epinephrine, depending on their past medical history and risk factors. And we know that none of those things work very well in the pre-hospital set setting. Really, the cornerstone approach to this is managing their airway. And if we see them starting to swell and we see their tongue swelling, their lips swelling, things getting worse, then we want to move towards airway control and management sooner rather than later because as that moves posteriorly, it's going to make endotracheal intubation orally very difficult. So then you're left with situations like nasotrach fiber optically versus, versus cryic. And we, we'd rather do it, do it up front as opposed to behind there. There's some other medications that have been introduced recently um, that have been targeted at the bradykinin system that have been fairly well proven to be non-effective and at the same time very expensive. So we're not, uh, we're not using those now in the emergency department setting, surely not in the, in the uh, pre-hospital setting. Sometimes in the emergency department, we'll use uh, fresh frozen plasma. Some beliefs that the additional complement and some of the clotting factors that are in the fresh frozen plasma can be beneficial. Again, the, the data in the literature there is sketchy at best. So again, from a pre-hospital standpoint, we're going to throw the kitchen sink at the folks with, with our allergic reaction uh, anaphylaxis normal treatments. But again, the most important thing for us to do in ACE inhibitor angioedema is to be aggressive and upfront with, with airway management. ARBs or Angiotensin receptor blockers are another class, kind of a first cousin of ACE inhibitors. You recognize those, Losartan, uh, most of those in, in TAN, trade name of Losartan's COZAR. It's the most commonly prescribed uh, ARB. And really not much to add there other than they can cause angioedema. Uh, they'll cause it less than ACE inhibitors, but they, but they can cause it as well. So if we see somebody with angioedema and we're on Losartan, it's definitely a possibility. Oftentimes, people are switched to ARBs from ACE inhibitors, also from a less important side effect from the emergency standpoint, but one that can be definitely annoying to the patient, and that is cough. You get less uh, chronic cough with ARBs as opposed to ACE inhibitors. And then finally, the last uh, antihypertensive on our list of the three, and that is one that we we see and know very well, that's amlodipine. I'm um, not going to have a discussion about calcium channel blocker overdose. That's a, that's a, a podcast in and of itself. But what side effects are we going to see with calcium channel blocker overdose? Jordan, kind of the, the uh, think about where our calcium uh, channel receptors are. We're going to get, if we're giving it for, for blood pressure reduction and we give too much, we're going to have low blood pressure. Low blood pressure, right? We're also going to have some effect on conduction system as well, depending on which calcium channel blocker it is. Too much to dig into today, but you can also get some pretty significant bradycardia as well. So we do our normal resuscitative steps. Fluids, uh, vasopressors, give calcium in, these, in this situation. It can be helpful. Uh, plus or minus glucagon. Um, again, uh, another topic for another day, but that's really the, the uh, big pre-hospital setting where calcium channel blocker management and use is going to be important. Some of the other less important uh, less emergent things that you can see. One of the big complaints that patients can have when they initially start calcium channel blockers, especially amlodipine or Norvasc, is going to be some lower, lower extremity edema or puffiness. Um, and again, I think with all three of these medications, we take these all as a, as a vascular risk factor as well. 
So when patients are chronically hypertensive, they're going to be an increased risk for renal failure, MI, stroke. And so sort of thinking of it from the detective standpoint, you can back into, well, if they're on lisinopril and they're on a calcium channel blocker and they're on other antihypertensives, you see those people that are on two and three and four antihypertensive meds, they're at high risk for, for MI and for stroke. So that's four out of 10, Jordan. Let's, let's keep moving. So talking about things that are, are too much for this episode, I know you're not a, bi- a big fan of uh, angiotensin and renin-aldosterone cycle. Um, so, you know, the ACE inhibitors and ARBs play a part in that cycle, just different parts, but not the lecture you want to get into today, I suppose. Um, another lecture that I think we can give it another time uh, is for the next drug, but chronic pain is kind of a, a big problem today. It's in the news, um, certainly a medical issue that we need to address. Um, it's not surprisingly that we'd have an opiate on the list and hydrocodone's on the list. Um, I think we could have, or we already have a podcast on opiates, and I think we'll have more in the future, uh, depending on the specific topic. But probably too big of a too big of a topic to bring today. But do you have anything on on that today? No, I mean the most common most commonly prescribed uh, opiate is going to be hydrocodone uh, Tylenol combination and different names there depending on the amount of Tylenol. So we know these as Vicodin with 500 milligrams of Tylenol or acetaminophen versus Norco with, with 325 milligrams of acetaminophen. During my career, our, I think our practice pattern as a, as a whole has switched from primarily seeing Vicodin with the 500 milligram acetaminophen concentration down to uh, the 325 with Norco due to concerns not from the opiate portion of the combo drug, but from patients taking too much and having hepatic issues, liver issues from Tylenol toxicity. So we all know that the Tylenol toxicity is not the big problem here. The big problem here is the opiate. Um, And again, we've talked with our uh, best friend toxicologist, Dr. Jerry Snow out out in Phoenix about some of the fentanyl hysteria. If you're interested, please go back and listen to that podcast. We've got another uh, podcast coming soon, depending on our release dates. This may be released before or after this one, so bear with us. But we've got another podcast in the works about some EMS-directed sort of treatment for, for opiate users and abusers and folks that are addicted. So I don't want to spend much more time on that today. We can, we'll hit that in, in multiple podcasts to come as it's obviously a problem right now in our country and a topic that's really important. So we'll see as a medic, a lot of mixtures of hydrocodone and Tylenol doesn't really matter the differentiation. I think we all recognize the names um, and we could treat that with Narcan if it was an overconsumption of that. Um, So I think we're good there. There's another pain management that's that's not quite as clean cut for us, but gabapentin's on the list. Um, Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so gabapentin or Neurontin is, is definitely on our list. It shows up, looks like number eight. I think I probably see it feel like probably more commonly than that, not a whole lot to take from gabapentin from an emergency care, emergency provider management perspective. Brief history, gabapentin is, is I feel like, been a uh, major victory for the pharmaceutical companies, probably not so much for the patients. Originally, it was developed back in the 70s, 60s, and 70s for seizures. Uh, didn't didn't really work for seizures. The drug companies dug up an indication for neuropathic pain. Uh, if you look at the uh, data for that, it's probably sketchy at best, but when we see patients on it today that are using it, that's the general indication is for neuropathic type pain. Oftentimes things like most commonly diabetic neuropathy uh, being the big one. So that not somatic pain like a broken arm or arthritis from, you know, knee joint degeneration, but more the the sharp shooting 
uh, lancinating neuropathic pain, again, most commonly uh, diabetic neuropathy. One of the things when, when looking at Neurontin, just so we don't think that it's a totally safe thing in and of itself, and if uh, you want to dig into the toxicology out there there's and the pharmacology, there's plenty that you can, but just to sort of boil it down, there's a 60% increase in mortality when patients have Neurontin paired with opiates. So I think it's important for us, for us to remember that it's not risk-free. Uh, it, does, it, it does have some mechanisms of action that are similar and um, additive with opiates. So I think we need to be careful when we see this on the list because oftentimes these patients do have the hydrocodone, Tylenol combination with Neurontin, with potentially, you know, other, other various and sundry things, Soma and... Uh, well, I was going to name one that maybe you can speak of. So it's, uh, we had opiates on the list. We have Neurontin or Gabapentin, not an opiate. Um, and then we have Tramadol that's kind of somewhere in the middle that you see prescribed a lot, but a lot of opinions on Tramadol. You talk about digging into some... Yeah, I mean, some I'm, debate. Why don't you, do you, I'm, do you have a second yeah. for Tramadol? Yeah, and I don't, Tramadol's not on our top 10 list. I'm not a Tramadol fan. I, in fact, am uh, very much in the camp of anti-Tramadol as far as another medication that has been very well marketed by the pharmaceutical companies as a non-opiate, quote-unquote, safe medication. Uh, it is absolutely 100% uh, has addictive properties. It does act on uh, and its metabolites act on mu, mu receptors like opiates. Um, it is it is synthetic, but it you can withdraw from tramadol just like you can from opiates. You can overdose with opiate-like overdose symptoms with tramadol. And I really think that the biggest downside to tramadol, which is not specifically opiate-related, but uh, you can have seizures at therapeutic doses. And in fact depending on what numbers you look at, 1 in 10, 1 in 8, 1 in 12, not a, not a minuscule number of first-time seizures in adults are tramadol-related. So I don't see any real reason to ever put anyone on that drug. So we'll leave it at that. So I guess as far as translating to medics, too, if you think about what we can treat, what we can't treat. So opiates, obviously, Narcan, uh, gabapentin, no result from Narcan, and tramadol is kind of a maybe, um, but either way, when you have a, a comp, if you have an overdose, you don't really know what they have overdosed on. You don't know what other meds they took. Narcan's always a safe bet, but just kind of the knowledge in, in the, the back of the mind is helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think really a lot of this is, is knowledge for knowledge's sake. When it comes to treatment protocols, we're going to go back to our toxidromes, right? And if somebody has pinpoint pupils and bradycardia, respiratory depression, let's start with Narcan and we can work our way back through the med list. Same thing for, you know, tramadol. I don't think from a medic standpoint, you know, without a lot more knowledge that you're going to pinpoint any seizure necessarily 100% to tramadol. But I think that you could see a seizure in a patient that's on a, you know, three or four meds. Maybe tramadol is one of them. Maybe they were just started on it for a, you know, an ortho procedure or some, you know, pain syndrome. And you're going to treat the seizure the same, whether it's a tramadol seizure or a withdrawal seizure or... Uh, you know, an idiopathic seizure, we're going to start with our, our benzos and work our way from there. But I think it's, it, I think it's just something that's, uh, I think it's good to know. Again, we, we're going to provide education to our patients and our patient's family 
and I think we're going to you know, provide education to the community. I think it's good to know what some of these commonly seen medications do and what some of the downsides are, especially when the thought in the lay press and with lay people and what we know based on uh, science and literature may not always agree. I think tramadol is one of the ones where pe people often think that this is a non-opiate and it's safe and it's non-addicting and, and, and I'm better off with this medication. And I feel like that uh, the evidence is there and it's clear that really we're not and there are better options and there are safer options and there's some very specific side effects that, that folks can have. So let's um, let's keep keep rolling down our list. You're checking off over there. What do you got? Yeah. Well, I said we wouldn't talk about pain meds too much and I feel like we probably went over on that. So uh, another huge disease process, lots of medications for diabetes, um, but one of them hits the list. It's prescribed uh, enough out of all the, the options that you will see it on the top 10 is metformin. Yeah, so we kind of, we already touched diabetes for a second. We talked about diabetic neuropathy. The most common oral diabetic med is metformin or uh, glucophage. And metformin, we see very often when we pick up folks, it's the first line treatment for type two diabetes. Uh, it's tried and true, been used for decades. It's gonna increase glucose uptake in the muscle. So. You got somebody whose sugar is 180, you give them metformin, stimulates the muscle to take up more of, more of the glucose, lowers their circulating blood sugar. It's going to decrease gluconeogenesis in the liver. Gluconeogenesis is a long word. I'm from Kentucky. I've got a syllable limit and words that I can understand. It decreases the sugar production in the liver. So you've got increased muscle uptake. You've got decreased liver production. Again, we're going to see this one in lots of folks that we pick up. And idea being we're going to make less glucose in our liver, pick up more in our muscle, and decrease our, our circulating uh, blood glucose. Not a whole lot more to say other than that. It's really hard. It's not impossible, but you very rarely see uh, significant hypoglycemia with metformin. Again, rarely. Uh, it can happen, but not as commonly with some of the oral, other oral uh, hypoglycemics. One of the you know, emergency department findings that you can get with metformin addition use dose increase is some lactic acidosis. Again, not something that we're going to necessarily see or recognize in the pre-hospital setting, but one of the things that you see out there when you read about it. Uh, but as far as, again, if somebody take, takes a bottle of metformin, yeah, you probably want to hydrate them um, just like you would in most of our tox patients. You probably want to consider you know, monitoring their sugar more closely than you would normally. And if they're 40 or 50 or 60 and you think they're dropping, obviously we're going to give them glucose regardless of what the text says. So uh, beyond that, not a whole lot more to add with metformin. Let's, let's keep checking our list off over there. What else, what else do we have on our list? You said part of this uh, podcast is to be a detective and, and know what the medications mean or how to treat. Clearly, if you see metformin on the med list, that'll tell you to do an AccuCheck or a, a glucose, right? That would be the next step. It's Absolutely. altered mental status, check a glucose. They take metformin, check a glucose. So I think that one's pretty uh, pretty cut and dry. You don't have to be Sherlock for that one for sure. Right. And they may be on others, right? And so it may be an issue of they just started, they just got a, a sulfonylurea added to their metformin, a, a glyburide or glyphoside, or they just got uh, insulin added to their metformin. So again, if they're altered, it's, that's a pretty straightforward, simple example of what we do every day. But that's kind of the way I want us to approach a med list 
period is to know that it's important. And that metformin gives us a clue that, hey, we need, we really do need to check the sugar. Not that we're not going to do that. We always are. But that's, that's, that is sort of the detective, uh, the sort of the most dumbed down detective example that, that we could give. Yeah. Right. This, uh, let's go on to the seventh most prescribed drug. I know it's kind of went, the numbers have been out of order, but it's really because we've been talking about disease processes. So one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, disease processes, for whatever reason, is, is GERD or reflux, and uh, you and I talk about it offline quite a bit. Um, folks can't see him smiling. He, he likes this topic just as much as I do. Uh, Omiprazole is the uh, medication on the on the top ten list. We see it a lot. Crusade a lot. Tell us uh, yeah, something so, about Omiprazole. So Omiprazole, uh, generic trade name Prilosec, is in the drug class proton pump inhibitors, and as we know, our stomach makes acid to digest our food and we make that acid through proton pumps uh, hydrochloric acid to be be precise and so if we've got esophageal reflux disease i.e the acid refluxes from the stomach into the esophagus where it's not quite as friendly we want to turn the acid down if we've got peptic ulcer disease where we've got an ulcerated portion of the stomach lining that's never going to heal if it's coated with a ph of two or three so we turn proton pumps off to, to help heal those ulcers. That's, uh, it's, a lot of these are over the counter now. These are really, really commonly used drugs um, and have been pretty, pretty important, pretty, pretty uh, practice changing in how we approach the treatment to ulcer disease and acid reflux over the past 20 to 30 years. Not a whole lot really from a pre-hospital standpoint um, beyond, if you see somebody that's on a PPI, this is a detective step that may not be as obvious, right? If you see a Prilosec and the patient is weak, the patient's dizzy, the patient's altered, you pick them up potentially from an, a nursing home or an assisted care facility, or you pick them up from, you know, from home and you notice black stool everywhere, this is one you could back into acute GI bleed pretty easily because if they're on a proton pump inhibitor, you have, to, you have to assume they have an acid overproduction issue. Whether that's GERD or gastritis or peptic ulcer disease, any of the above, they're at risk for upper GI bleed. So I think that's a, uh, you know, definitely one where we could, we could um, sort of reverse engineer ourselves into the diagnosis. You're not going to talk about ulcers or uh, peptic ulcer disease without telling a story, and you know the one I'm talking about. It's also the H. pylori or the, the most common cause of ulcers. So... Helobacter pylori is uh, a gastric bacteria, uh, bacteria found in our stomach that is known to put us at risk for peptic ulcer disease. This seems, we, we talk about this now in the lay press, we take, we go to the, if we have reflux or ulcer disease where our GI doctors check us for H. pylori and potentially will treat us for it if we're positive with an antibiotic cocktail this is fairly commonplace today. I think if you're, I mean, I'm uh, not super young anymore, and I've got friends and family that have been down this road before. It's fairly common. So I think you probably know someone or have a family member or potentially you yourself have, have been exposed to H. pylori treatment and, uh, you know, biopsy and testing and, and diagnosis. But it's to look back at the history of how we, as a medical field found out that H. pylori put us at risk for ulcer disease. It's a pretty amazing story. And we've actually attached uh, a magazine article that, that goes through it because I think it's interesting to, to, to think about 
Um, people like this still exist today, and and maybe potentially I'm laughing at them, and I'm the one that's wrong. But there was an internist from Australia named Barry Marshall uh, back in the 80s, not the 1880s, the 1980s. So this wasn't that long ago uh, that, based on looking at some patients and and his his patient uh, population, it was at that time was thought that ulcers were all caused by stress. So kind of type A personality, overwork, um, bad diet, alcohol were all were all some of the risk factors. But Dr. Marshall worked with a pathologist named Robin Warren, and together they hypothesized that this bacteria H. pylori was was putting people at risk and potentially uh, helping to cause these ulcers. And he was laughed out of multiple gastroenterology meetings, could get no traction with, with research or research funding. And to cut the long story short, basically took um, cultured H. pylori from one of his patients and drank it in a broth. And of course, in short time, had peptic ulcer disease. And then he treated himself with an antibiotic cocktail and got better. So he basically used himself as the, as the N of one to try to get some traction here. And he went from in the mid eighties being laughed out of uh, international and national gastroenterology meetings to being a, a Nobel prize winner uh, some, some decades later. So I always think about that a little bit when I hear things that sound very bizarre that, you know, am I laughing at, at Barry Marshall and Robin Warren and one day I'm going to be the one that's wrong. I don't know. Uh, but very, definitely an interesting story. And if you want to want to read about it, we, again, we've attached a little, a little uh, a link to to an article about him and, and the story. So that gets us almost done. Let's let's wrap us up. We only got a couple more to go, Jordan. What do we have left? We have two less left, and I guess uh, let's go with the number two on the list. I'm surprised it hasn't come up, uh, or even in the hypertensive conversation. But artorvastatin or Lipitor, second most commonly prescribed medication. So you know, statins, not a whole lot from from an emergency standpoint as far as you know overdose there's really not an overdose or a tox presentation for that's terribly significant for statins again i think it's important to know that the statins lower our cholesterol so patients that are hyperlipidemic are going to be placed on statin that's first line first line treatment um, one thing to think about is when they're started on statins what's when you listen to you guys all heard the uh, Lipitor commercials if you have muscle aches or muscle cramping, call your doctor right away. And why do we? Why is that in all the commercials? It's because the uh, main significant side effect of statin introduction is the potential for muscle cramping, muscle irritation that can progress to muscle breakdown uh, or rhabdomyolysis. Again, from a pre-hospital standpoint, we're not going to be getting CKs. We're not going to be getting renal function. We're not going to know that that's the case. But if somebody's cramping and potentially, you know, out of nowhere, when you see a statin on the list, be ahead of the game. Uh, we investigate that more thoroughly in the ED. But that's our, that's our number two uh, on the list. So statin's super common. And then finishing it up with, uh, with our last one, we're going to hit on, again, we talked about hypertension. We talked about diabetes. We talked about pain. We talked about acid reflux. Um, and again, going along with hypertension and hyperlipidemia, I kind of uh, lump those together for vascular risk factors. We hit Synthroid, which was our outlier. And uh, the last one on the list is uh, Sertraline or Zoloft. And Zoloft is a selective serotonin 
reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, used mainly for, for depression. And certainly does have a situation where it can potentially play a role in the pre-hospital setting. What is that, Jordan? Talk about it sometimes with our TOX lectures. Serotonin syndrome is the answer to that one. Serotonin syndrome basically is a situation when we're on uh, SSRIs, again, certainly being the most common one, uh, where we can develop tachycardia, rigidity, altered mental status. And again, another lecture for another day talking about the differences between serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome and malignant hyperthermia. The big one is, is look at their med list, and if you see SSRIs on there, that's going to put serotonin syndrome up the list. Uh, and another big one that will occur with serotonin syndrome, more pronounced than with some of the others, is muscle rigidity. So again, uh, take these folks through, through range of motion. Um, that completes our top 10. So let's walk back through the top 10 one more time, Jordan. Uh, sertraline. Metformin, gabapentin, amiprazole, amlodipine, hydrocodone, lasartan, lisinopril, artorvastatin, and levothyroxine. So there's our top 10, uh, and I would encourage you to think about these related to the common medical problems that we see. Again, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, pain, depression, acid reflux. So if you think about those five, you can expand out into the 10 most common meds pretty quickly. Um, don't ignore the plastic bag full of pill bottles. This is going to allow us to reverse into their medical history pretty easily. It's also going to allow us to, to take ourselves forward into potential side effects and or overdose tox issues from the meds that they're on. Plaque tarry stools and on a PPI, think about upper GI bleed. Uh, muscle rigidity, tachycardia, diaphoresis, just got a new psychiatric med added. I don't know which one it is, and you see sertraline or Zoloft in the bag. It uh, should, be, should be a red flag for you. You know, uh, the obvious with, um, you know, hydrocodone and opiate toxidrome, we, we know what to do there. Checking the blood sugar in patients that are on um, diabetic meds, again, that's not one that one that we do already but again just don't underestimate the value of that objective information that the med list gives us because in so many situations in the pre-hospital setting we have subjective everywhere we have family who know half the half the history we have the new nurse that just came on in a nursing home that doesn't know all that much about the patient but the one thing that we do know, again, the one objective finding that we can get oftentimes is the med list or the med bag or the med bucket, you know. So I think we should use that to our advantage, have a little bit of knowledge about these commonly prescribed meds because we're going to see them over and over and over again. And so with that, we'll wrap us up. Thank, thank you all for joining us. Another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. And we'll talk to you all soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.